I'm Carlo Pignataro, and you are listening to a new episode of Lux and Friends. Today's podcast is about innovation. The innovation that can and should come from within a corporation. Yes, contrary to popular belief, large corporations are better off than startups at winning the innovation game. Or so says my guest, Andrew Bins. Andrew is the co-author of the best-selling book, The Corporate Explorer, and a strategic advisor to Fortune 500 companies. Listening to this interview, you will learn there is a breed of managers, there are corporate explorers, who have the vision and the courage to challenge the status quo and bring the disruptive change large corporations need to keep striving and sometimes surviving. They are as innovative and effective as the startup entrepreneurs the press loves to portray as the queens and kings of innovation. And they are also different. Corporate explorers must disrupt business models while harmonizing ideas and resources. They must pursue new opportunities while making sure the existing business and the people running it don't feel threatened. It's not an easy job, but someone must do it. And that person may be you. Andrew, it's great to have you on the show. Delighted, Carlo, to be here. Thank you and very I have much to for the say, invitation. And I have to say, finally, because after reading several hundred pages of your latest book, which is titled Corporate Explorer, How Corporations Beat Startups at the Innovation Game. So I said, after reading several hundred pages of, of this book, very interesting, it's a pleasure to finally see you in person. Good. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's a great thing to say. <clears throat> and let me start with... Uh, let's say, a provocative question. Bear with me. You know that popular perception is that large companies, uh, in general, do not lead disruptive innovation. Hardly any of the companies that made it to the top 10 of the Fortune 500 list uh, 20 years ago, in, in, year 20, in year 2000, are still there, maybe with the exception of Walmart, which is still there, but we cannot really say it has led the retail disruption we have witnessed over the past 20 years. On the contrary, some at the time unicorns, and I'm thinking of Amazon and Facebook, not only are now some of the most valuable companies in the world, but they have literally changed the way people live. Or Tesla, which has a market cap, which is four times, four times larger than Toyota. And it's saying a lot. So yet your contention is that large corporations not only have a chance at beating startups in the innovation game, but that they are actually better off. Why is that? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, so thanks, Carl. You're right. It's a, a provocative question. And I, and I, and I think that, that, that you know, every book should have a provocative subtitle. Right? Indeed. And, and so, so our, our subtitle, Corporate Explorer, How uh, Corporations Beat uh, Startups at the Innovation Game, we don't say beat them every time. We say beat. Now, we could say could beat, occasionally beat, have been known to beat, which would not be so interesting, right? So, so we're, we're establishing, though, that this is not only possible, it happens. It's real. It's happening in the world today. And 
to some degree, it's been happening for, for quite a while. But the, the issue is that um, it, it doesn't make headlines. You know, what's the headline in big company reinvents itself again or launches a new product line? It's like, it's boring. And so to some degree, we are, our perception is affected by the, 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 sh the bright, shiny object that is Tesla. And this also, of course, moves market valuations. You know, maybe t Tesla is worth that four times um, uh, uh, the, the value of a Toyota. I know myself, I'm not rushing out to buy new Tesla stock right now, right? There's potential that they, they, these, are, these are a little bit of uh, 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 mythology as well. So, so the question is, you know, they, they beat them. When do they beat them? What are the examples? And, and actually, you mentioned Amazon. Amazon is a 20-year-old company that has beaten startups. It reinvents itself consistently and persistently and has kind of a, a bit of a recipe for how it does it. Right? Um, and Microsoft is another company that you might put in the sort of the digital bracket, but is actually now an established firm, uh, uh, you know, 35 or, 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 or well, you know, more than that, years old. Right. And, and, and they had to, to reinvent themselves um, uh, in, uh, under Satya Nadella in the last um, you know, 10 years or so. And so these are two good examples that are actually in that digital set who are doing this. And this represents part of what's going on, which is I think the world has, the business world has woken up to the reality of this notion of disruption. Right? We used to talk about it as something that we needed to persuade people about. That's uh, not, we, we got the message, right? Um, and we all know Nokia, Blockbuster, Kodak, we know these stories. There's some debate as to why it happens, which we can talk more about, but we understand it. And, and then um, what we see is, is, is firms that do this successfully. Some of them as Amazon, Microsoft, as I say. Some of them are less well-known. You know, LexisNexis is a um, you know, mid-tier firm in terms of size, um, but it successfully created a multi-billion dollar franchise moving from legal information to risk analytics. It's like nobody talks about this as a story, but it's there. And there's lots of startups who are in the milieu trying to create that same um, uh, market in this sort of 2000, 2010 area. But they're the ones that did it. Very true. And your book is full of uh, case histories, mm -hmm. methodologies, mm -hmm. um, sort of profile of people that can make it happen. So shall we start uh, from... Yeah. Case histories, and in particular, the one you have experienced yourself during your tenure at yeah. IBM. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Carla. Yeah, the, so my journey on all of this um, started, well, it started when I was at McKinsey before IBM, and uh, I got the brief chance to work with what was called the McKinsey growth practice. Mm -hmm. And this was this three horizons of growth model that some firms use to look at the horizon one is your current business, Horizon 3 is your experiments. And when I went to IBM, IBM was really trying to, um, um, to deploy this way of thinking. And so we had what we called the Emerging Business Opportunity Program, a series of different investments looking at new markets that IBM would go into. And IBM had, had come through um, the great turnaround in the mid-90s by this point and was looking at how do they attach themselves to um, some sort of growth trajectories. And the one that really stood out in that experience was IBM Life Sciences. And what I learned from working as a part of that IBM Life Sciences team 
is that, yeah, there was a big strategy story. There was a big um, story of having a really distinctive offering into the sort of emerging bioinformatics genetics sort of world, which is what they were focused on. But there was a lot of leadership. There was this one leader, Carol Kovac, um, who had to drive this new entity into the business because the rest of IBM was like not very interested. You know, th this was sort of an, uh, almost an irritant to them because they felt they had their strategy. They were dealing in the many um, billions. She was dealing in the you know very small numbers of revenue. Uh, what has she got to do with the 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 the, the monster that was IBM at that at that point? And and her leadership was all about scaling that business to the size of the opportunity, not to a size that would make her respectable as a manager or slightly successful and get her a, a decent you know, performance rating, but actually, how do I take this business to a billion dollars in three years? Wow. Right? And, and that scale of ambition is what separates the corporate explorer from a manager doing innovation, trying to make things better. And so the book is a lot, as you say, about stories. It's about those people who have that scale of ambition, much as an entrepreneur might, but doing this inside a corporation. That's interesting, Andrew, because if I understand you well, corporate explorers are different from the everyday manager, with all the respect. Yeah. But what I, what I learned in your book is that they're also different from the portrait, so to speak, of the disruptor, the way we know it, uh, the entrepreneur who comes up with an idea that changes everything, uh, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg. The corporate explorer is a different breed. Can you help us understand yeah. who they are and how they think? Good. Yeah. And I think this is, this is the key thing I, 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 that if we can get from this book, a sense of corporate explorers in organizations, find them and use them, you know, give, set them free, right? Mm. Give them that opportunity because there's huge possibities within that, right? So he, he, to, to directly answer your question, they're alike, they're like entrepreneurs in the following way. They see a problem in the world, right? Mm. Um, there's, there's something that a customer can't do um, and that a problem that if they can solve, um, then uh, they could make something make something happen. So in the book, we talk about uh, Christian Kurtish at the insurance company Unica, um, which is like a, 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 a serves Central Eastern Europe um, uh, customers, to, has about 10 million customers. Um, and, and Christian is a middle manager. He's running the Hungary business, a little business within their overall portfolio. And he says, hey, I see an opportunity to do something for my customers because they are dealing with an insurance world that imposes all kinds of things on them. You have to have an annual policy. You get treated like you're uh, trying to you know, defraud um, the company of money if you make a claim, right? You have to wait a long time until we're ready to deal with you, right? All of these kinds of basic principles of the insurance industry, he's like, no, we can do this differently. What if Spotify did this? They would make it... Um, you know, flexible subscription. They would assume that you were telling the truth. They would use AI to detect fraud, not not armies of of loss adjusters. Right. So there's a um, the, the, there was the shift in his thinking, just the same as a Bezos or or others, where he's different. And here's really really important point. Whereas the um, venture backed entrepreneur, 
build a community of venture capitalists to give them backing, maybe an ecosystem of partners external to the firm. And they've got to project the vision, the future, the possibilities of, of their venture and get excitement in order to generate the kinds of valuations you mentioned. The corporate explorer needs a social network inside the firm. They need to build their support with their investor base, which is, yes, senior managers, but is also peers, people who are going to give them access to assets in the business, which is what's going to help them go faster than a startup, manufacturing, sales, brand, whatever it is they need. They're going to need to access this. And yes, you can get a corporate policy, give them the rights to use these things, but it's a human relationship that makes things work. And what we see in these corporate explorers is that they have a strong social network and also some humility. They don't mind having other people make them successful. Mm. It's okay. And that's not the profile of your entrepreneur, right? <laughs> so this is, this is a critical difference. Wow. And let's talk about the methodology. In the book, you write that they have to excel at three things. Uh, ideating, incubating, and scaling. Would you like yeah, to elaborate exactly. on this? Yeah, so, certainly. So ideation is a little bit of what I already said. Find a customer problem and have an idea about how you would solve it. Right? That's clear. Um, and, and we should talk more about ideation because it's one of the places where corporations get trapped. The, the, the second one is incubation, which is using evidence to test that idea. Small experiments, de-risking your investment, learning whether what you think a customer needs is what they actually need, and then investing as you learn. One of the big things corporations do is they invest ahead of learning. Right? And so um, they sort of, well, if we're serious about moving into this market, we should spend a lot of money on it. Enough with the learning stuff. Let's get on and spend. This is a trap. You've got to move, move, move in small increments rapidly, but small in order to get to um, uh, knowing that the business you're then going to invest in works. And then you've got to scale. And, and, and scaling is about turning that um, uh, business that you've carefully learned about into a revenue-generating uh, entity. And, and that involves having a real clear path of what it will take to get to scale. Firstly, have you got an ambition equal to the size of the opportunity? Again, back to my IBM example, it's no use thinking, oh, we'll just add a few thousand to the revenue line. You've got to have a substantial level of ambition, just the same as Bezos did. Bezos didn't scale Amazon for books. He scaled Amazon for distribution of consumer goods, right? Indeed. So, and that's the same mentality that you need from your corporate explorers um, when it comes to scaling. And then you've got to think about hey, I'm going to make some acquisitions, I might have some partnerships, I'm going to use what I've already got, and I'm going to build some stuff, and I'm going to sequence a set of moves in order to create the, the, the level of scale um, that is possible in your business. Um, so these are three quite distinct um, uh, disciplines. And, and what tends to happen uh, is that um, <laughs> there's too much focus on ideation. When you get into incubation, corporations struggle to have patience with that, and then scaling is not seen as a distinct activity. It's kind of you thought, well, just just go make it sell the way that everything else we do is right. It's not. It's not. Um, uh, there's not a plan. There's not a strategy for how to do it uh, ordinarily. 
So the, the, these are some of the traps that, 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 that people fall into when they try to do this. And what is the role of a CEO uh, yes. to make it happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's certainly to set this ambition, right? So in the book, we talk about a few CEOs who I think really represent that. Um, we talk about Jensen Huang at NVIDIA, right? This extraordinary story Oof. of taking graphic processing, um, you know, to, to now AI for autonomous vehicles and all the rest of it, and an 8,000% uh, increase in the stock Phenomenal. price. Absolutely outstanding. And he did this with a clear ambition. He set himself the ambition. We want to find problems that nobody else has solved and that we can have fun um, solving, right? So he's kind of like engaged his team in this quest, and he defined four or five different end markets that he wanted to move into and said, this is what we're going to go to. Now tell me how it's going to happen. And he engaged the organization, and over 10 or 12 years, he moved it. And I had the benefit of speaking to him a couple of times during that story. And so this is not sort of the sort of the retrospective, you know, justification. I actually heard, heard him tell me um, during that story what he was working on and why he saw the opportunity and, and the degree of commitment that he had to having it. So that ambition is key. And then you've got to be, when you've got a corporate explorer, you've got to be ready to, um, to do a couple of things. Firstly, you've got to be ready with, to learn through evidence, right? not get impatient. And then you've got to be able to give them enough separation. They've got to have autonomy from the core business, because if you allow the core business to control these new experiments, these new businesses, they will always kill them, not out of you know, bad intention, but just out of the logic of grinding out profits every day. So you've got to separate it out. And the CEO can do this um, uh, themselves enough um, to give it the right sort of level of a uh, great chance to get started. And speaking of the organizational side, uh, based on your experience, uh, would you recommend uh, in or, in a, uh, a corporation to create uh, a, a spin-off of the company mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. A different, or, or, or a different organizational chart? Yes, yes. Um, I'm happy to talk about it. I'm, I'm interested also to color in what you see in the luxury goods market because it's, it's not a market I spend a lot of time in. I have a, a project um, at the moment in that. Um, area, but but I don't I don't spend a lot of time there. Um, what we see is this: that if you make so, yes, you need it to be separate. Right? Um, however, if you make an innovation lab that is really separate to the core business as a sort of a spin out, a few things happen. They become detached from all of the things that you have that can help you go faster than a startup. And so that detachment makes it less likely that you're going to succeed. And so, yes, you need it to be separate, but you also need some points of integration. Targeted, very careful places. For example, you have people from the management team uh, of the core business sitting on a, on a, a governance board for your uh, innovation business. Um, you have maybe where there are assets that are going to get leveraged you know, so maybe they're technology assets or um, maybe manufacturing assets. You have some kind of um, management uh, mechanism for, 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 for aligning people uh, to how that happens. So keep things separate, but not so separate 
that you can't leverage the core when you need to, and that um, it's not so separate that the core isn't learning. You know, most of the time, this is these new businesses are about teaching the core business something. Right now, a lot of that has to do with digital, digital business models, you know, frictionless commerce, um, different ways of, of engaging uh, customers and generating customer experience. And most large corporations struggle with this problem of having a legacy culture. Well, these are cultural incubators, right? Corporate explorers show us not only the future business models, but also the future organization. So if you keep them really separate, they never learn anything. So you've got to keep some points of integration. Uh, and, and, and this is where my, my colleague, Mike Tushman from Harvard, who, who was one of the co-authors on the book, Mike talks about a sort of a social or a leadership movement, right? That, that, and this maybe is a role for the CEO as well. Is you, you, you want to put the, um, the new ventures in the context of the overall of what you're trying to do. It's not something completely separate. Go play. That's a very corrosive notion that it's something we're just playing. It has to be a part of a story as to where we're headed, what we're trying to do to generate future for the business. That's interesting. Every time you speak, I, I, I envision a fine line uh, between failure and success. It, it feels so thin. Yeah, yeah. And since yeah. you mentioned culture and luxury, and I have to say, based on my experience in the luxury goods industry, which now is over 20 years, that culture plays a big part in the success of a brand or a firm, uh, because it's all about the heritage and the values and the way uh, they, they communicate a culture that people can embrace. Yes. So you are a consultant now, and as a consultant, you help companies innovate. When you walk into a new company, what are the elements of culture that makes you say from the first minute, this company will succeed at innovating and this company has no chance? Yeah, yeah. It, it focuses a lot around this, this degree of ability to focus, hmm. right? When we walk into a company that has lots of ideas, it's all about we need, we need innovation to generate lots of ideas around here. That can be a problem because what you do is you create a zoo. Lots of people doing lots of things, very exciting, very interesting. But the degree of commitment to the next stage of, well, does anybody want them? And will they work? Will they buy it? Will it create a business for us? That discipline's not there, right? And so we almost always see that this high focus on innovation, ideas, idea generation doesn't translate into discipline going incubation and scale. So that's the most common. And then kind of coupled with that is this sort of decisiveness. You know, at some point, and this is a little bit back to a CEO, to be fair as well. At some point, you've got to commit. Yeah? And, if you, and you need both the formal mechanisms for making decisions, but you also need the human, you know, the, the, the courage to commit. And this comes down to a group of leaders who are ready to cross the threshold from I'm interested to I'm in the game. Right? They're going to put money behind something. And this, of course, is this, this cultural problem of risk aversion that you know, anybody who spent time in large corporations knows about. And, and, I, and I want to reposition risk aversion a little bit uh, and, and think about it as how do you use experimentation to de-risk so that by the time you get to that moment of I've got to go from I'm interested to I'm in the game, 
I, I've actually I've I've taken care of all of the issues that I have. I, I kind of know who the customers are. I kind of know what they're willing to pay. I have a sense of uh, of um, who the competitors might be. Lots of little steps, and eventually you get there. And and if there's impatience for for action now uh, and a lack of willingness to really go through this learning, then that's a very hard path for success. So uh, we we focus on that when we first go into firms. Moving to a different topic, yeah. we are experiencing today what the press calls uh, the great resignation. Yeah. Many people are assessing their life in different parts of the world, not just the US, and the and they don't want to go back to work. I mean, not in the office, <laughs> which is the office being the epitome of large corporations. Yes, yes. So don't you think this works against the idea that large corporations can lead the innovation yeah. game? Yes, yes. So I think that it's related for sure, because um, what you're dealing with here is the degree to which corporations can um, can adapt, can be flexible, yeah, right? um, can deal with different ways of working, um, and, uh, and, and, and also, to be honest, Carlo, be focused on outcomes, not inputs. Right? You know, large corporations get awfully obsessed with, um, uh, with you know, the presence test. Can I see them at the office? Can I see them busy? Even in the 21st century, yeah. right? And, and I think that maybe what we have is this threshold moment when we're like, well, that makes no sense because you know what? I need to judge Carlo on the results he generates, not on how often I see his smiling face, right? Because it, it's, it's, that's why we are in business. So I think that's a, that's a helpful shift if companies can see it. The, the other, the other place I think it connects, um, is, is this, this notion that corporate explorers are rebels. They, they fight against the way things are done today. They kind of poke a finger at the system and say, hey, we're not paying attention to these needs. Like my example of Christian Curtis at, at Unico Insurance, right? He creates this share risk business that's now scaling across um, uh, Europe. And, and he's saying, uh, let me tell you the story. He actually presents to his, when he finally gets to the management board of Unico, he presents them a single chart. And it's this tower block of people um, in uh, uh, in an insurance company, and he has all the stats as to number of people employed and how you know how, how much cost per customer there is. And he says, "Here's my business. I'm going to have two people." And here's here's the economic. Look at the contrast in the economics. This is he's poking at the current system. Right? So these kind of free radicals, these rebels, are really important because they help us move. And so I think that yes, um, as we are seeing this great resignation thing take place. People are saying, I don't, I don't want to be a part of these monoliths. I want to be free. We, we've got to take, we, we're going to find these people who actually are our future, who can show us something about the future. And, and one interesting statistic, Carlo, is that in the US at least, um, the, the number of um, new business starts has quadrupled at the yeah. same time as the great resignation. So what we're seeing is a lot of pe these people are leaving to go start up a business. Let's help them do it inside. You know, it's it, it's a win-win if a we win. can figure out how to do it. That that's that's the point. And since your daily work and your research uh, propel you, so to speak, in the future, let me ask you one question, Andrew. Yeah. 
which industries are going to be disrupted in the next five years? And yeah. if you want to name names, which companies are not going to be in the Fortune 500 in five yeah. years down the line? Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to name names, but because um, the, the, they may turn out to later be clients. Um, <laughs> yes, but the um, automotive they need to be really scared because um <laughs> you know that you know we know that they're moving from you know owner operated gasoline powered um uh, uh vehicles to autonomous ride share electric okay we've known that for quite a long time right but but then you look at um the num the sheer number of startups across china and even across california that are that are working on uh, these models. Some of them incidentally have backing from people like Amazon or whatever. They've got in early to company like Zooks. Um, um, my friend uh, Aisha Evans leads Zooks and, and this is creating these autonomous um, uh, buses basically that, that, that can move people. They're, they're extraordinary vehicles. Um, so so there's, there's, there's something really shifting for them and the whole supply chain in automotive is linked to making engines. It's like, this is what they do. This is, these are engineering companies and they think of themselves as engineering companies. And what they've got to think of themselves is as customer experiences. They're generating a customer experience. And one of the things that we know, if you think about what happened with, um, with the uh, phones, is that the reason why Apple is so valuable is because it's a point of integration of a customer experience. It's the moment at which everything comes together and I as a consumer use something. That's a car in the future. Hey, and and... And all GM, Ford, Toyota, the rest of them get to do, and maybe even Tesla get to do, is make the dumb boxes into which the experiences go. And that, that's, a, that's a worry. The other thing I would say is it's healthcare. Is, I, I, I believe healthcare is ripe for an enormous disruption. Right? It's such an inefficient industry. It's so vital. There's so much politics around it. But you know, we can do this so much better. And, I, and, I, and I, I genuinely think that that will get turned on its head as predictive um, uh, medicine devices comes into play. Uh, I think the possibilities for, uh, for linking that to new business models will be just too compelling to, to avoid. And I think the money of governments will move fast because it's such a problem. Right, because it's something that aligns with their interests to be able to do healthcare cheaper and better. So that's the other place I'd see enormous disruption coming. Before I before thanking you for this very insightful conversation, Andrew, let me ask you one last question. We are experiencing very difficult times in general. 2022, March 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to mention all the politics and the things that are going on, but we are experiencing very turbulent yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, are you optimistic about the future? I am optimistic uh, because I have a belief in the, you know, the creativity, the diversity, the uh, ingenuity of humankind. Uh, I believe that every little piece of progress that we have um, is, is actually um, you know, as, as uh, Martin Luther King said, you know, the, the arc of history bends towards freedom. I do believe this. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, we are in a really tough time right now. Um, but I think it will, it, it, we, will, we will see it through, um, pen, you know, barring the most uh, 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 severe consequence of, uh, 
of Mr. Putin's actions. Um, so, so I, I am, I am, but it, but it's got to be around human beings as individual actors. We cannot wait for somebody else to do this. It's one of the messages of Corporate Explorer, right? Is that this is not about these aren't stories of people who are given the responsibility. Hey, Carlo, you are now responsible for get, creating a new business. Good luck. No, these are people who fight. Right? who put the story in front of somebody who's going to invest in them. Right? And that's what we've all got to do with respect to climate change. You know, Ukraine, I think, is more difficult. Whatever it might be, you know, human rights, transgender rights, whatever it might be, we've got to actually put ourselves out there and, and talk about this and, and commit to that, to that positive future. So, Indeed. I agree with you. And uh, as we mentioned during our conversation before starting the interview, it's high time for you to come and visit Dubai again. I don't know if you know it, but we have a ministry of possibility here and a ministry of artificial intelligence. So it's your playground. And they play cricket. And they play cricket. (laughs) Andrew Bins, it was a pleasure to have you on Lux and Friends. Splendid. Thank you very much, Carly, for the invitation. I enjoyed it. 